Great to see you all and great to see the, the sun's out. I've got some sweets to give away. We're going to start this morning with a bit of a general knowledge quiz. Uh, I spent a couple of years doing a pub quiz at the Seven Sisters in, in Seaford and I miss it. So I felt like today, let's just have some quiz questions as we kick off. The, 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 theme, or the, the theme of the round is cities. Okay, so here's some questions. First one to answer correctly gets the sweet. So first question is, what is known at what city in the world is sometimes called the eternal city oh come on very good you can, it's two sweets you can share one with simon that would be encouraging and uh, don't share the one that fell on the floor because that wouldn't be encouraging that's the first question second question um slightly more difficult what is the largest most populated city in the world pardon manila China's not a country, but that's a great guess. <laughs> Beijing, minute. Huh? Tokyo. Alex, ready? I'll give you one so you can catch it. In the mouth. Catch it in the mouth. Oh, very good. And I'll give you some sweets for playing. Thank you, Sean and Pat, for that. That was brilliant. Tokyo is the most populated city in the world. Um, anybody want to guess how many people? No, 30. What? Give me my sweet back. 38 million people. 38 million people. Yeah, he thought he was on a roll there, didn't he? You know, knock him down a few pegs. That's that. Don't get, don't get peas above sticks, lads. <laughs> 38 million people live in... Sorry, Alex, that was mean. Have another sweet for, as a way of apology. Second most populated city in the world is Delhi, which is 26 million, and Shanghai in third at 24 million people. You know, in 1950, just 60 years ago, there were only uh, two cities in the world bigger than 10 million people in population. Now there are over 20 cities in the world, over 10 million. Guess what percentage of the world's population live in cities? 80%? I don't actually know. The answer is just more than 50%, which is quite high. There you go. Have some sweets for that. Which is pretty high, isn't it? More than 50% of the world's population live in cities. Now, a typical question from these pub quizzes that I would... Stuart, you've got a very nice smiley face this morning. Have a sweet. <laughs> well done. We'll also be giving out sweets for good listening. For good listening. Uh, a classic pub quiz question that would often come up is this. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times, is the opening line from what novel? A Tale of Two Cities. Well done, Shayla. That's right, A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. Well, long before Charles Dickens wrote his book, The Tale of Two Cities, a famous Christian, a man named St. Augustine, living in North Africa in the 4th century, he wrote a monumental work that went on to shape the culture and society of his day, a work called The City of God. Similar to Charles Dickens, he said there are two central cities in the world. Not London and Paris, but in his case, the city of man and the city of God. He said, in fact, that history is one long tale of a fierce clash of these two civilizations, the heavenly city and the earthly city, the city of God and the city of man. Well, today we're talking about cities, but why? Well, as a church, we're in a teaching series that we've called Blueprint, where we're looking at God's vision for the church, who we are, what we're called to be, what on earth we're doing together, why we meet like this. Whenever you think of cities, whatever you think of cities, Jesus gathered a ragtag group of people and he called them to one side and he said to them, you are the light of the world, a city set on a hill. You are the light of the world, a city set on a hill. 
to a group of people who that phrase, city on a hill, meant one thing. It meant Jerusalem, the city set on a hill that God's people had lived in historically for hundreds of years. He took that idea and he applied it to a group of people and said, you, you are a city set on a hill. Now Augustine, in his work, he talks about these two cities, the city of man, the city of God, and he says this of them. He says, these two cities have been formed by two loves. There is the earthly city, which is formed by the love of self, even to the contempt of God. And there is the heavenly city, formed by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. The question is, where are you? Which city are you in? The city of God or the city of man? The, question, the better question would be, where is your primary love? What's your motivating impetus and passion for life? Augustine in the 4th century saw this, that Christianity isn't primarily about how you behave. Instead, it's about what you love. You behave like the things that you love for. So whatever someone says, I believe X or Y, you can tell what they really believe by what they love. You can tell what they love by how they behave. The church is a group of people a community of people called out of the world not to live a holy life, to not to just meet together in little gatherings and wear socks with sandals and have rainbow straps with your guitars. The Christians are meant to be a group of people who say, I love God. We love God above self. That's our identifying feature. Not, we don't have t-shirts that say Jesus or tattoos that have big crosses on them. We could do. But what marks us out it isn't that we've done some citizenship tests and qualified for this city, which if you've ever done the British citizenship test, you probably know more about this country than most of us Brits in the room. They're very hard. But for those of us in the city of God, you're there because you love God. You're there because you've been baptized as a demonstration of that love of God. And today I want us to read together from Matthew chapter 5 and talk about the city of God, what it means for us, and how we as a community of people can live this out. Matthew chapter 5. This comes in the the beginning of Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. Here's the phrases about blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn. And then he goes on. And we read two weeks ago when Graham was here, and then I'm going to carry on. He says, you are the salt of the earth, in verse 13. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world, a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You read verse 14 again. You are the light of the world, a city set on a hill. So Jesus transfers this image of Jerusalem as being the city on a hill and says, you are that place. In the ancient world, cities were, were population centers of anything between one and 3,000 people. They weren't huge. So by that standard, our towns are cities. Seaford, New Haven, Peacehaven, Eastbourne, they're cities. The church is a city within those cities. It is an alternate society, a different community. 
This is what one writer says about this city within a city. He says, Christians are called to be an alternate city within every earthly city, an alternate human culture within every human culture to show how sex, money, and power can be used in non-destructive ways, to show how classes and races that cannot get along outside of Christ can get along in Him, and to show how it is possible to cultivate by using the tools of our education, government, and business to bring hope to people rather than despair or cynicism. That word that Simon brought out about what encouragement is, to bring a hope to people. What I want us to look at from Jesus' words is that city, the city set on a hill that Jesus says is a city of light. You're the light of the world, a city set on a hill. I want to show us that that city is a city of light that is centrifugal, that is attractive, and is influential. And a big word for a Sunday morning. Let's start with that. Centrifugal, the city of light, the church, is centrifugal. What do we mean by that? We mean that it, it, centrifugal, it goes out from the center, as opposed to centripetal. I think it's petal or petal. Centripetal, which is, uh, moves towards the center. Centrifugal means to go out from the center. So most of us have come across the word centrifugal from when we were kids and we did that thing, or someone did that thing with the bucket. You know, you, put a, you get a bucket with some water and you, s- you put it up above your head, and what happens? The water stays where it is and you keep going around and it's, it's like, as a, I remember as a child when you first discovered this piece of physics, you, it's like entering an enchanted world. Look, the water doesn't come out the bucket and you go around and around and around and someone's like, how does it do that? And some clever kid in school normally says, it's because of centrifugal force. And no one really knows what centrifugal force is, but they say the water doesn't come out because of centrifugal force. What does centrifugal force mean? It means force that emanates out from the center. Now, in the Old Testament, the mission of God's people on the earth was centripetal. They were a community of people, a society, a nation, that were established as being different, alternate from their other nations around them. And they were to be a city on a hill that was beautiful and impressive, and the way they lived was supposed to demonstrate God's goodness in order that the other nations would come and behold them and see their brilliance. In the New Testament, things change. In the New Testament, Jesus says, you, communities, are cities on, the, on a hill. Wherever you go, you're, you're going to go out to people. Rather than draw people to you, the church is centrifugal. It goes out. Then, in that sense, Christians are supposed to be less like magnets that draw people. Church is less like magnets and more like yeast that infiltrates the dough. Light, by its very definition, emanates out from the center, from the source of the light. Put a candle in a bright room and the source emanates out. The light from the source emanates out. And that's why Jesus says, Listen, no one lights a lamp and puts a bowl over the top of it. Can you imagine you wouldn't do this. Going to bed, going to bed, you're going upstairs to bed before you go to sleep and think, oh, I'm just going to read my book. I'll put the lamp on. I want to better put something over that lamp as well so I, can, I can't read anymore. You wouldn't do that. What we do as a church, when we gather like this, it's in order that we might then be sent out every week. The church is on a mission in that sense. 77 of your 80 plus hours a week are spent out in the world, doing what you do. For three hours of the week, the church gathers. 
worships Jesus, beholds him, gets full of the Spirit, and then emanates out again. It's a picture of what we're supposed to be. People on a mission, we gather to be refueled and then we go. Sometimes people say to me, they say, oh, why do we sit in buildings? Church shouldn't be in a building. We should be out in the street and doing things. To which I say, I agree. But what do you think people are doing all week? It's what we do. We gather to worship God in order to then be sent out. As you go to work, as you sit on the train, as you serve the customers that you serve, when you build your websites When you arrive on the scene somewhere, when you teach kids, when you listen to families, when you sit and have coffee with friends, when you greet guests, when you go get new clients, when you're patient with members of the public, you are the light of the world going out into the world. The question is, where do we get that light from? We get that light from Jesus. Jesus is the truth. It's one of those rare blueprint images of the church where we are told to be something that Jesus has said of himself. He is. In John 8, he said, I am the light of the world. And then he turns to his followers and says, you are the light of the world, to which we go, which is it, Jesus? Well, that's the point. He is the light of the world. As we behold him and worship him, we become light and we go out. It's like that glow-in-the-dark paint. You've seen that. Some of my kids' books have glow-in-the-dark paint on it. And you shine a lamp on it and take the lamp off and the paint suddenly has a light of its own. We gather to worship him. And as we glow, we go. The church is centrifugal in that sense. Well, what else can we say about the city of light? The city of light is attractive. It goes out, but it also draws people to itself. The image that Jesus uses of a city on a hill is an image of being in darkness and seeing a source of hope on the horizon. A place of warmth, of safety and security that people are drawn to. No matter what your life's like, you can find rescue and hope in the city of God, the people of God. Now if you've grown up your whole life in church and been around Christians for most of your life, you're probably more aware of the church's weirdness than you are of its beauty. You're probably more aware that Christians aren't the coolest kids on the block. Christians aren't often the most fashionable people in society. Christians are prone for telling bad jokes and prone to playing party games as adults. It's what we do. Christians are prone to singing too much randomly, spontaneously. I remember when I was at uni, I invited my housemate, who wasn't a Christian, out to the cinema, and I took a friend from church, and we watched the film, and as we were coming out of the cinema, my friend turned to my Christian friend, and he said, what did you think of the film? And my friend went, yeah, yeah, it was all right, and then just walked off and started singing, Jesus, I love you, Jesus. And my friend was like, this guy's nuts. I'm like, yeah, I know, there's lots more where he came from, <laughs> do you want to come to church? Now, if you've been in church a long time, you're aware that Christians aren't We're not all that impressive a lot of the time. But don't let that fool you. Jesus says to the church, you are the light of the world. There is an attractiveness and a beauty and a light in the church that is desperately needed by people. And you become immune to it and blind to it when you live in it. I was talking to someone a couple of months ago called Bobby. And Bobby is in the leadership team at a church now in Mid-Sussex. He comes from a non-Christian background. He had quite a chaotic 20s. I'll tell you more about him in a moment. But when I spoke to him, he said to me, uh, we were on this student training day and all the the students were playing games and doing what Christians do. Um, 
And he said, there's something amazing about Christians when they get together and play. I said, I know, it's really awkward, isn't it? And he said, no, it's just the most beautiful thing. They're so inclusive. They're so inviting. They're so joyful. He said, you don't know what it's like. Said, well, I didn't come from this. This is amazing. I love this about church. Well, I was out for dinner with John's boss from gardening, Mark. Um, probably shouldn't have said his name out loud. Um, we went out for dinner for John's birthday. It was just a group of John and his friends. He managed to text around a few people he never met and say, can you pretend to be my friend? And we went out for dinner. And um, we just chatted. We just hung out. But afterwards, John was telling me how, how blown away his boss was by this group of people. Uh, we're just eating dinner. But what he said was there was just something so pure and innocent and joyful. They were having fun, but there wasn't a cynicism and a hardness to it. It was attractive to him. When you hear comments like that, it reminds you that Jesus was right. We are the light of the world. There is light in you. What you have and who you are isn't normal. You are not normal. And just by being yourself as followers of Jesus, you shine for him. Jesus was encouraging his followers. This is an encouraging statement. Looking them in the eyes and telling them, you are the light of the world. To which most of us who are British go, oh, no, you, I mean, I'm so full of flaws. I've got so many weaknesses. I'm really, I don't want to be arrogant, Jesus. I'm not the light of the world. Don't be silly, Jesus. Stop being so British. We've got to stop with our self-deprecating or denigrating humor and recognize who you are in Christ. You've got it, so you might as well flaunt it. The church is an attractive community of light that people outside, when they see it, when they glimpse it, they often marvel at it. I said to someone this week, it's very hard to visit church on a Sunday and only come once because there's something about you. You're so full of light and in welcoming and encouraging. You bring hope to people just by virtue of who you are. we got Simon and Jerry up here because I know these are two people who are full of and living with that hope. You spend time with them, you walk away feeling stronger and taller. It's not just Simon and Jerry. You are the light of the world. Recognize what you've got in Christ. Now, I know there's plenty of things that you're struggling with. There's plenty of habits that you're trying to break free from. You've got plenty of issues. I didn't say you're perfect. But Jesus said you are the light of the world because his light is in you and he sent you out. And in that sense, evangelism, telling people the good news, really isn't that hard. We stress over, how do I tell people about Jesus? How do I make it this? How do I do this? What initiatives and programs do I need to come up with? The truth is, just Be your jolly little self in love with Jesus and the light of God will shine out from you. I think sometimes evangelism is often as easy as just being available for people and being intentional. Those two things, being available, being intentional, hanging out with people. My friend in Istanbul is building a church by just drinking chai, just playing backgammon in cafes and chatting to people. And let Jesus do the rest. Jesus says, I'm the one who seeks and saves the lost. Are you going to come with me? Are you going to hang out with people? Are you going to be the light of the world? Are you going to give people your time? Are we going to fill it up with projects and things? I love the story in the book of Acts where Peter and John are walking along and they come across a, a, a person who's lame and begging on the street. And they say to him, don't they? You know the story. He says, look at me. And he looks at them. He says, 
silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And the guy walks. What do you have? I haven't got silver and gold. Well, you, you have actually by global standards, but that's beside the point. What do you have? You're a Christian, so what have you got? You've got the light of the world in you. You've got the hope and healing of the nations in you. I don't have much, but what I do have, I'll give you. I'll give you my time. I'll love you. I'll serve you. I'll pray for you. I'll care for you. I'll be available for you. And I'll point you to Jesus wherever I can. Uh, Chris and Jill Ashurst, many of you know them. They've uh, been in the church for several years. Lived in Seaford for, as, you know, since 1759, I think. They are in the process... They're in the process of leaving at the moment, moving to Edinburgh because they believe that God has called them there. And a couple of weeks ago, they were returning from Edinburgh, been on the train all day, went into Osborne's Fish and Chip Shop, the best fish and chips in Seaford, um, and got chat- chatting to the guy there. The guy said, oh, have you seen the rugby today? And he said, oh, I've not seen the rugby because I've been on the train all day, come back from Edinburgh. He said, oh, why have you been coming back from Edinburgh? And he said, well, I'm a Christian. We believe that God's called us to move there. And he started telling this guy about what God had said, how God had said it, why they were moving as a couple. He said, this guy, who was in his 50s, he supposed, was just undone, not cynical, was just eyes wide open, in awe. You, you believe what? God's done what? Life's like what for you? There was a mo- Chris said it was like a moment of hope where this guy was just hanging on his every word saying, there's a way of living that's better and bigger and beyond what I've got. There's a grander vision for my life. This guy was just hanging on his every word. What did Chris do? Just talked about the light of the world that's in him and allowed allowed this man to see it. The city of God, the church, is centrifugal. You go out. But it's also attractive. And lastly, it's influential. This is what Jesus says. They will see your good deeds and as a result of seeing you, they will praise your Father in heaven. They just need to see you, and the light of the world in you will cause people to be influenced by you for the kingdom. Let me tell you about my friend Bobby some more. So he grew up in a non-Christian home, lives in Burgess Hill. He's currently a a successful lawyer in a a bank in the city of London. And in his 20s, as a result of a messy breakup, he fell into addictions. He became addicted to alcohol, drugs, and sex, he tells me. And he would work long hours during the week in the city and then finish his job, clock off, and then spend 72 hours binging in search of a high bigger than the one he'd had the week before. He said he lived like this for some time. His body was exhausted. He was exhausted, but he couldn't stop. He kept going, kept trying to chase some more. The drink wasn't about the drink. It was about the next high. It's going to be better than the next one. I've got to not come down from that buzz, he said. He lived like this for some time until as a result of some weekend binge, actually it was a bit more than a weekend binge, because he, he volu- he's got money, he could do this sort of thing, he signed up to go on a stag do to Las Vegas with a guy he'd met five minutes ago and found himself in Las Vegas, not really knowing who the stag was. He said while in Las Vegas, he broke his foot badly and needed to be flown home. And for the next three months, he was bedbound, could hardly move. And during that time, a friend who happened to be a Christian invited him to his wedding. So he went. And at this wedding, he said it was just a pretty standard affair, there was nothing fancy about the service, but at this wedding he got chatting to the vicar. He said he was stood at the bar, getting drunk, and the vicar came and stood next to him and started talking. 
Because Bobby was on crutches, he thought, I can't really get away. So he talked to him. The vicar invited him to come to Alpha, which is a series of evenings that helps people to explore the Christian faith. The vicar invited him to come to Alpha, and Bobby thought, you know what? I don't know much about Christianity. I live in England. I'm a Britishman. I call myself, I say that I live in a Christian country. So he said, oh, I need to go find out. So he went to Alpha. Through the, the evenings and the weeks that went, he got to know the people and found himself with an ultimatum. He needed to decide what to do about Jesus. He became a Christian. And then he, now he tells me that five years, for five years, he's been sober. And he said he feels more content, more satisfied than he's ever done. He's still got his job, he's still working hard, and now he's serving and helping to lead in this church as well. Why do I tell you that story? I tell you that story because Bobby's life got changed when a friend invited him to his wedding. And his friend wasn't an evangelist. He wasn't one of those people with a wild stare, and he didn't pronounce the name Jesus like this. Jesus! He wasn't one of them. He was just a regular guy. He said he was quite quiet, quite shy, but he took a risk, and he invited Bobby to his wedding. And Bobby's life changed. He allowed his little light to shine. They did a, a survey a number of years ago, this organization called Talking Jesus. And um, they surveyed over 3,000 people in the UK. And uh, the, the survey itself was done by the Barna Group. Um, it has a high accuracy rating, I'm told. And one of the questions, one of the things they were doing in this survey is they were trying to find out people's attitudes towards Jesus, evangelism, and church. So they asked Christians, they asked non-Christians, and they everything you know, in between. And one of the questions they asked them was this, when you consider the factors that positively influenced you to become a Christian, two or three things made the most impact on you? So ask people, what was it that made you become a Christian, those of you who are Christians? The results were quite interesting. 28% of people said the reason they became a Christian was that they, or one of the deciding factors for them was that they attended a church service other than a wedding or a funeral. 36% of people said what influenced them the most was a conversation with a Christian. So that's 60% of people said that they came to faith through mere exposure to the city of God. By just coming to, on along on a Sunday and seeing what people did. 60% of people said that talking to you or the person sat next to you, a Christian, about their faith was one of the deciding things that helped them come to faith. Now what's interesting is that fi only 5% of people said that had anything to do with the church's outreach program and only another 5% said it had anything to do with the Alpha course. I, that bears repeating. So 5% of people became Christians, or 10% if you put them together, became Christians because of a church's outreach program or Alpha. What made the difference was the 60% said it was just the church, just being with the church and talking to a Christian. It was just rubbing up close with the city of God and seeing it. And sometimes people say to me, what's your strategy for evangelism? What's our strategy for changing this town for Jesus? I tell you my strategy. You are. You're the strategy. Allowing people to meet you. Putting you on display you are the light of the world. You're a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. And we can do things. You can run out for courses. I'm not knocking those things. We can, we're going to work hard and do everything we can to be as intentional, as deliberate as we can. But you know what the most effective thing is in this town for reaching people with the gospel? 
It's you. It bears repeating. You need to hear this. Because we're not going to turn this town upside down for Jesus when we put on all these great shows or events or run these great courses or have all these amazing ministries when we're doing this, this, and this. We're going to turn this town upside down for Jesus when people like you just start being with people and allowing people to get close enough to you that they see Jesus in you. Allowing the light of God in you to impact people. I remember talking or hearing from a, a man named Mark Bailey who was a church leader in, in Cheltenham. He's an Anglican vicar and he had turned this church around from being a, a dwindling congregation of several hundred to being in over a thousand people on, in its regular weekly attendance of various groups. And he said, you know what? The church tr- was transformed and we grew and if, uh, uh, this conference I was at, all these church pastors sit on the edge of their seats. He said, you know what it was that caused our church to grow? And everyone's sitting on the edge of their seats going, tell me what it is. What's the magic bullet? What's the thing that's going to change my church? All these pastors were thinking. And he said, our church changed when we just started having lots of parties. And we just started inviting people to our parties. Started hanging out with people. And everyone thought, oh, so I could save a lot of money, a lot of time, a lot of energy and effort. If we just had more parties together, yes, that's it. Be, why? Party's not going to save anyone, no. But the city of God is, the light of the world is. And if you allow people to get close enough to see it, you'll impact them, you'll change them. So I put it to you, church, we need to party more. We need to have more fun. We need to kill more deer and antelope and gazelle. That's not true, and I shouldn't say that from the front. <laughs> that does not reflect the policy of this church. You hear my heart in this. The city of God is a city of light, and that light is centrifugal. It goes out from the center. It's attractive, and it's also influential. When people see you, they'll be impacted by you. I don't know how you are at inviting people to things, but so I feel like that's a, an area of pressure that we need to feel. How, how are you at inviting people to, into your life? Let's say that. When was the last time you took a chance and put your neck out there and said, do you want to come round? Or can I come over? Or we're doing a, we're playing volleyball on the park today. Do you want to come? Or my church is running this course called Alpha. Would you like to come? No, because it doesn't work. Oh, okay, just hang out anyway. That's not what I'm saying. I think that's an area where we could probably grow in becoming more influential. Let's come into land with this. Wherever you are, whatever city you're in, New York, London, Seaford, you and I are to be in and partner with the alternative city that is the city within a city, the city of God. This is about much more than worshipping together. This is about much more even than being a community together. This is about us being on a mission together. We are a city that's partnering with God, that loves God, that lives differently, that is the light of the world. Let's consider Jesus' example as the light of the world. He came from the Father, the place of perfection, into the darkness of this earth. Born as a baby, they tried to kill him before he had a chance to defend himself. He came bringing light to us. And we set him upon a hill and crucified him. 
we killed the light of the world on a hill. But the light of the world didn't die because the light of the world is here in this room. And it didn't die on a hill because you are the light that's on a hill. You are the city of God. We're going to respond together by celebrating Jesus, by giving thanks to him. We're going to remember his death on a cross. We're going to break bread as an act of remembering his body broken for us. And it's significant we do this together because this is an act of us being the city together, the city that, in a strange sense, we feast on the body and blood of Jesus. You know, early Christians got the reputation for being cannibals. Their critics and opponents said, why would you spend time with those cannibals who are engaged in incest? It's a strange accusation. Because they called one another brother and sister, because they ended up marrying their brothers and sisters, they were accused of incest. Because they ate meals together of the body and the blood of Christ, they were called cannibals. And yet it was those people, that community, that the world looked at and thought, these guys are freaks. This isn't right. We should feed them to the lions. We should light them on fire to light up our parties, which is what they did to the Christians. It was them that as they were burning at Nero's party, being tortured for their faith, that light, the true light, had gone out into the world. The witness of the church, the light of the world, the city of God, and it went on to transform society and civilization as we know it. Let's pray together.